Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. Great to see uh, Southeastern Seminary students and faculty. Uh, this place is one of actually my favorite places in all the earth. And uh, some of my favorite people in all the world uh, are in this room right now and some of the people who have had the greatest impact uh, on my life. I look out and see, and whether you're joining us uh, via live stream or or here, this is a special place. This is a great commission seminary. It's what draw us here. It's what kept us here. And it's why I am back today. The reality is um, Ashley and I love Dr. and Charlotte Aiken. They... um, They are so special to us. We would not probably be here in North Carolina if it wasn't for them, and they have loved us. He made a promise to me, and I know that there are some who are here on preview day. Uh, When we came up, he said, if you will come, be faithful to the Lord and to each other, we will take care of you. And I am here to tell you that that was the greatest decision that we ever made was coming here to Southeastern Seminary. We love them. We secretly try to like weasel our way into their family anytime we can. Um, I even fight with uh, their sons just so I can feel like I'm one of the Aiken clan. Um, The reality is I wanted to preach here a long time ago. After I graduated, I was out front there and and Dr. Aiken and Ms. Charlotte, they came over and gave me a hug and said all these nice things. And I said, you know, I would really love to preach at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he said, that's nice, Todd, but you're just not ready. And he walked away. And then like, you know, so like, you know, kind of a little damper on the graduation day. A few years later, you know, I had, I, I was now leading the sending team at the Summit Church, uh, sending missionaries around the world, planting churches. And uh, we we're meeting and I said, Dr. Aiken, I would really love to preach at Southeastern. And he said, Todd, you know, I love you, but uh, you're just not ready to preach at Southeastern. So I was thinking, you know, okay, what now? And so last three years, I've been serving with J.D. Greer as he's been trying to lead our convention to be a gospel above all convention focused on evangelism, inclusive. Dr. Aiken and I work together almost on a weekly basis. And I said, Dr. Aiken, I've been a missionary, a associational director. I just got elected the executive director of North Carolina. I would love to preach at Southeastern. And he said, Todd, you're a fine man, but you're just not ready to preach at Southeastern. And I said, Dr. Aiken, what do I have to do? I will do anything. I'll come here for free. And he said, now you're ready to preach at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, Before I get started this morning, um, which is code for I'd like just a couple minutes back on the time, um, I do want to bring greetings from North Carolina Baptist churches. Uh, If you're a student here, you are here with a scholarship because of the generosity of North Carolina Baptist students. And if you're here and you're kind of like, what's North Carolina Baptist? Um, I want to tell you that we are a movement of churches on mission together. And we not only want you to be a part of that, we need you to be a part of that. Because you are not the next generation, you're the now generation. And you are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we're a movement because Jesus prayed his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we ask the question, why not in North Carolina as it is in heaven? We're a movement of churches because we believe the church is God's plan A. The church is the bride of Christ, and we love associations, we love state conventions, we love Bible colleges and seminaries and mission boards, but it's the church that's God's plan A. And so we're a movement of churches. Plug into a local church. We're a movement of churches on mission. 
People ask me, what's the convention going to be like with you at the helm? And I said, well, I can tell you what we're not going to be. We're not going to be a good old boy network. We're going to be a convention for all peoples that reaches all peoples. We're not going to be a Christian social club. And we're not going to be a political action committee. Guys, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I have strong political convictions. But we're not going to be the party of the elephant or the party of the donkey. We are going to be about the lamb who was slain. And the last thing I would say is that we're going to be a movement of churches on mission together. And together is sadly not a word that we would probably use to describe our culture. And what's even worse, it's not a word that we would use to describe our churches. But with North Carolina Baptists, we're going to love each other. We're going to be together. We're going to assume the best in one another. We're going to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And when we differ or when we're wronged, we're going to extend grace the same way that Jesus showed us on the cross. And so thank you for being a part of this because Southeastern is one of our finest partners with North Carolina Baptist. And we're honored to be here this morning. Let me just tell you that as a graduate of this seminary, I know a little bit about what you're feeling. I was pastoring a church down the road. I, I guess I was working like 60 hours a week. I was going to school full time. Y'all, I took five classes in one semester. Ashley, who the only reason I graduated in three years with good grades was because of her support and her love and taking care of me, and I thank her for that. She later went to this school and she graduated last year. And your professors will tell you that she is by far their favorite unzicker student. I kind of expected an amen out of that gentleman over there, you know? Ashley's feeling bad right now. But I would tell you, here's what I would guess is kind of happening right now. The newness of the semester is wearing off. The daunting reality of what is coming is, 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 is you're starting to feel it. Those impending midterms are coming up, and maybe that outline and bibliography for that research paper is due next week. Some of you are like, oh yeah, that is due next week. <laughs> I would say in a room this large, or maybe people who are watching online, some of you walked in here and joined us, and you're carrying a lot of weight. Maybe there's just a lot of hurt. Maybe some of you are pastoring right now. And you know if you're in pastoral ministry and in seminary, that's hard enough, but you're in the midst of a global pandemic, racial strife, and political idolatry that is as high as it's ever been. Times are uncertain, things are difficult. In fact, I can remember being overwhelmed myself, and my favorite overwhelming story was in Dr. McKenzie's Hebrew class. Remember when he would call on you with the translations? And he's going around the room, and... Um, one of my dearest friends and a fellow pastor named Chuck was sitting over in the back on the other side, and Dr. McKenzie said to him, hey, Chuck, can you translate number three for us? And Chuck, without hesitation, Chuck says, no, sir, I can't. <laughs> Maybe some of you here, that are here this morning and you're saying to yourself, you know, I can't translate this next, next, this next problem. I can't translate this culture. I can't translate this pastorate. I can't translate this racial strife and political idolatry. I am struggling. I am here to remind us this morning that we are on mission together and our God wins. So take your Bible, take it out, turn it on. 
to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and I realize that some of you didn't pay attention to a word I said until I said Revelation. You won't get this in Dr. Shattuck's preaching class, although he is the finest preaching professor that I know, but I'll just give you a little tip. Uh, If you want to get your audience's attention, you can say the word sex, Calvinism, or Revelation, and everyone will pay attention. But today, what we're going to look at in the book of Revelation is not one of those weird passages. It's not one of those stranger things passages. You can put away your end times charts. And if there's something I say in the book of Revelation, I would love to hear your feedback. If you have some criticism or or some questions, you can email me at daken at scibbets.edu. What we're going to look at today is we're going to look at a picture that I think will take our breaths away. Something that we all have to look forward to. It's an earthquake of a passage. Because God comes to the Apostle John And as we said in the sports world, we got to get the picture. He's 90 years old. He was the the apostle that Jesus loved. And he has been faithfully serving. And what does he get as a reward? He sees all of his friends murdered. He is sent to the Guantanamo Bay of his time to the island of Patmos. Quarantined, if you will. And it was there in the midst of that uncertainty and that being overwhelmed, it was there that our gracious and loving God gave him a glimpse of what he has to look forward to. And because this is a school that believes in the inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient word of God, here's the great joy for us. God gives us that vision right here this morning in this chapel. So Revelation chapter 5, we'll walk through a few verses, talk about it, and then we're going to look, how do we live today? How do we live on mission together in light of eternity? Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll or to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was even able to open the scroll or to even look at it. So I wept much. Let me just stop right there. Some Bible scholars say that this is the only time that tears are mentioned with heaven. No one's found worthy. Not the famous angels, not Gabriel or Michael, not any of the untold countless saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Job, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, none of them. And most of you know this, you're in seminary, but seven seals being God's perfection and his righteousness. And God is sitting on the throne which means he is not the man upstairs. He is the great I am, the one that was and is and is to come. And in his right hand is a scroll that is signifying his readiness. God is ready to act when we go to him. Verse 4, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open or even read the scroll or even to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. To open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. You following this? John is weeping, all looks lost. One of the elders does an Old Testament prophecy here. 
It's the kingly image of our Lord. He is the king of kings. He is the king of all leaders. He's the king of all false gods. He's the king of all nations. He's the king of all false ideologies. But what does we see this king? He is a lamb. The king became the lamb and the lamb became the king. And when he looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And if I can just say for a second, many of you are preparing for ministry or in ministry. I think it's important because often we treat evangelism as a problem to be solved rather than people to be served. Our king came to serve and to lay down his life. Verse 8 says, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. Maybe your Bible says myriad of myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice. Now let me just stop right there. Dr. Aiken mentioned that I was a sports reporter, covered SEC football. Let me, trend, let me say that another way. I got paid to watch college football for a living. Now, I've been here 10 years. I know this is basketball country, but I'm talking football. I'm not talking NFL. I'm talking college football. Good food, fire pits, grills, multiple games going on at once. And in my family, we love football. I love football. And it's not hard for me to imagine 93,000 of my beloved Georgia Bulldog brethren cheering it's not hard for me to even imagine the crimson tide fans and the clemson tigers and and duke well probably not duke but most teams i can imagine cheering on these fans but i can tell you this as great and exhilarating as that is now can you imagine thousands upon thousands and the numbers we can't even count of people of every nation tribe and tongue saying worthy is the lamb who was slain Verse 12, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Southeastern, I don't have deep theological insights for you this morning, but I have some simple questions that I think are themes that we see here in the scripture. If you're taking notes, I hope you just write down a few questions that I'm asking myself. Number one, do I pray as if God will answer? Do I pray as if God will answer? Because I see here in verse 8 that the elders had golden bowls full of incense, which are what? Prayers of the saints. Brothers and sisters, God not only hears our prayers, he keeps them. He savors them. They're a pleasing aroma to him. Do we ask him in light of that we believe he is going to answer? I just can imagine that there's some of you who have some real heavy hearts this morning. Financial burdens, maybe struggles with infertility, 
maybe a diagnosis on cancer that you're waiting for. Maybe you're saying, I don't know what to pray, Todd. Let's just pray his word back to him. God, you desire that none would perish. Save my child. God, you said that you are the one who heals. Heal my spouse. God, you promised to meet all my needs. God, you promised to never leave or forsake me. God cherishes our prayers, and they are a pleasing aroma to him. That's why North Carolina Baptists say that prayer is not our last resort. Prayer is our first priority. There's a second question. Not only do we have to be people of prayer, second question I ask myself, am I truly willing to suffer for the sake of the mission? Am I really willing to suffer for the sake of the mission? And just being super real with all of you, this is a hard one for me. Yo, I hate to suffer. I'm that guy in the summertime that's got like the air conditioning on at like 66. I don't like to suffer. But I know this, that they sing, you were slain and have been redeemed to us by your blood. And we see that the God saves the world through the suffering of his son, we celebrate that with Holy Week, with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. And I think suffering could take different forms for many of us. Let me just put on my missions pastor hat for a second. Guys, most of what we as American Christians talk about in suffering is not suffering. The war on Christmas is not suffering. Because you do a snarky Facebook post that's really more geopolitical and is probably about masks or something else, and people get mad, that's not suffering for the gospel. I showed Dr. Aiken before I came up today that some missionaries that left this school and have lived over in Central Asia for the last 12 years sent a picture just last week of a man that I had a chance to meet, and on his back were marks. This was last week. And a new regime has taken over that country and he was beaten last week because he refused to go to the mosque and because they suspect that he's a follower of Isa. This is suffering. Are we prepared to suffer? Suffering could take many forms for us. There are hundreds of North Carolina Baptists Many who are graduates of this university right now who are overseas that are suffering for the cause of Christ. And I think that in this rapidly post-Christian context that we need to be prepared for that. And I would say that if God predestined the cross to bring blessing from it, why can't he predestine our suffering and turn it for good? And if we're not ready for suffering, I'm not sure that I am. That's something I want to go back to point one. I want to be a person of prayer and say, Lord, here am I. Send me no matter what the cost. There's a third thing I think if we're going to be on mission together is that if we're going to be able to live today in light of eternity, the number three I would say is this. Is what I'm offering people truly the gospel? Is it truly the gospel? Because I see here in the, in the text it says they were redeemed by his blood. And there's a very beautiful and a very difficult fact that salvation only comes by the name of Jesus and all saving faith is focused and found on the Son of God. It is finished, he said. And there are thousands of people groups, clusters of people with their own language and culture and identity who have never heard the name of Jesus. And I think that's unacceptable in our day and time. We must give them the gospel Southeastern, I would just say this to you. Share the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. 
Show them their deep need to be rescued. Invite them to trust Jesus. Pray with them because our God saves. I began following Jesus at the age of 28. My, I listened to some faithful preaching. There were many things that God was doing in my life that I got to hear the gospel, but I remember one guy in particular. He was this bold evangelist. He actually grabbed me by the collar. Scared me to death, honestly. I thought he was a total freak. But he grabbed me by the collar and he said, you're a sinner and you're jacked up and you need a savior. Y'all, it was like two months later, but those words rang in my head. I watched Ashley starting in March, the friends, a group of people. None of them had donned foot in a church. None of them would have, they were like bold, like, no, I'm not a Christian. And I'm excited to say at a restaurant right here in Wake Forest, yesterday, yesterday, this new friend of my wife's looked at her and said, I want to pray to receive Jesus. I want to follow him. This happened because she said, do you want to follow Jesus? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that blood, lose all their guilty stains. Why not just sing that song? Why not tell that message to a whole world? Number four, Do I seek to bring the gospel to everyone? Do I seek to bring the gospel to everyone? Who's John talking about here? All peoples. Not all people. We know that the road is wide that leads to destruction and the path is narrow that leads to salvation. But all peoples. That's because God is going to win for himself people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to see the glory of the Lord. Friend of mine, dear, one of my best friends, he shared this story I thought was good probably a decade ago, and it's rung true with me. Guys, if you are married, or if you are thinking about being engaged, you will become or have become an expert in something you never thought of before. Diamonds. You like study, you learn about all this stuff. There's like the four C's cut and clarity i don't remember the other ones cost that was one but the interesting thing about a really good diamond is a really good diamond like the really good kind i'm sure that's what you have on your finger baby is what i'm talking about but anyway a really good diamond is that you can put a diamond in a dark room and if a little bit of light will come and hit that it will sparkle the way I think about this is, why is God winning for himself people from every nation, tribe, and tongue? Not because it's the cool issue of the day, but because when we see worshipers praising his name from all different places, it shows the supremacy of our God over any cultural differences, any tribal deity, any worldly ideology. He stands alone and reigns supreme. God destroys racial pride. This isn't a social justice issue. This isn't a political issue. This is a blood of Jesus Christ issue. And if we are going to be people who are people of prayer, who are willing to suffer preaching the gospel, we have to know it is for all peoples. Last thing I would say is this. What does my worship say about his worthiness? Now, when I say worship, you're probably like me. You immediately think of what we did here before We got into the word. That's fine. These guys are awesome. I'm grateful for them. Thank you for leading us today. But it's so much more than that. It's doing whatever we do well for the glory of God and doing it strategic for the mission of God. 
And you may say, Todd, where's your, where's your kind of text on worship? Guys, this whole chapter is a worship service. It's all about worship, and we are to be all about worship. In fact, the English word worship comes from worth-ship, and that is that worship is showing and displaying the worth of God. Am I doing that in how I live my life today in light of eternity? John Piper famously said, missions is not the ultimate, worship is, because God is, not, God is ultimate, not man, and the reason we do missions is because worship doesn't exist. Am I living, to get, living today in light of eternity? You know, there's an analogy that if somebody came to you and handed you a slip, a paper that says that you have won $300 million, we'll call it an inheritance because we're Baptists and we know it can't be a lottery ticket. But if they gave you that and you left to go claim that prize today and you had a flat tire on the side of the road, Think of how much different your perspective would be because you know that that momentary affliction in light of going to something life-changing, it pales in comparison. And so this morning, I just want to end us with this. In the midst of the semester, in the midst of chaos that seems to even reign in the church as much as it does in the world, and we're not sure when this pandemic is going to end or when politics will become part of its normal place, or when Jesus will come back again, I want to take you back and remind you that Jesus is the center of it all. And the scene that we get to live forward to has been talked about from the pages of every single scripture. From the Old Testament to the New. How do I know that? Because on that day that Jesus rose again, there were two people walking on the road to Emmaus. They were walking. Their world was shattered. Destroyed. Wasn't Jesus the Messiah, they asked themselves? Wasn't he going to put an end to this tyranny of Rome and this enslavement? Wasn't he going to make Israel great again? It's right then that Jesus showed up. And he began to tell them from all the pages of Scripture where he was and that he was coming. There's been a lot of preachers who have tried to explain this, a lot of versions of this, but I'll just, I'll just share you mine. You want to close your eyes and just imagine walking with Jesus, and this is maybe what he would say to us. You know, in Genesis, I was the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. And in Exodus, I was the Passover lamb whose blood is sprinkled on the doorposts of your heart so that you can escape the bonds of slavery. And in Leviticus, I was the temple, the holy place where we met with God. And in Numbers, I was your ever-present guide, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And in Deuteronomy, I was the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. And in Joshua, I was the conquering warrior leading you into the promised land. And in Judges, I was the unlikely savior rising up to rescue you. Oh, and in Ruth, I was your kinsman redeemer. First and second Samuel, I was the meek shepherd king who rushed out to face your giants all alone. And in First and Second Kings, I was the righteous ruler. And in First and Second Chronicles, I was the restorer of the kingdom. And in Ezra, the faithful scribe. And in Nehemiah, the rebuilder of walls. And in Esther, I was your advocate, risking my life to restore you to glory. In Job, I was your living redeemer. And in Psalms, I'm the one who hears your cries. 
In Proverbs, I'm wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, I'm the meaning that enables you to escape the madness of life. And in Song of Solomon, I was your lover and your bridegroom. And in Isaiah, I love this. Maybe Jesus said, I was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wounded for your transgressions and pierced for your iniquity. And in Jeremiah, I was the spirit that writes God's laws on your hearts. And in Lamentation, I was the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, I was the river of life bringing healing to all nations. And in Daniel, I was that fourth man in the fire with you. In Hosea, I was your ever faithful husband pursuing his unfaithful bride. And in Joel, the restorer of all the locusts had eaten. And in Amos, I was your burden bearer. And Obadiah, the judge over all of the earth. And in Jonah, the prophet who was cast out in the storm so that we could all be brought back in. And in Micah, the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. And in Nahum, the avenger of God's elect. And Habakkuk, the reason you rejoice even when your fields and bank accounts are empty. And in Zephaniah, I am the great reformer. And Haggai, I am your cleansing fountain, and in Zechariah, I am the pierced son whom every eye on earth will one day behold, and in Malachi, I am the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings for you. But Sivitz, we know that not only Jesus was foretold, but he came, and that's why in Matthew, we know he is the king of the Jews, and in Mark, he's the son of God, and in Luke, he's the savior born to us in the city of David, Christ the Lord, and in John, he's the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and in Acts, he is Christ the risen Lord, proclaiming salvation to all nations, and in Romans, he's the justifier, in 1 Corinthians, he is the spirit at work in the churches, and in Galatians, he's the righteousness imputed to us by faith, in Ephesians, he is our righteous armor, and in and in Philippians, he's the God who meets every need. And Colossians, he's the firstborn over all creations. And in First and Second Thessalonians, I love this. He is the one who is descending from heaven with a shout, coming to meet us together one day in the clouds. And in First and Second Timothy, he is the one mediator between God and man. And in Titus, he is our faithful pastor. And in Hebrews, he is the great high priest. And in James, he is the work of our faith living out. And in First and Second Peter, he is our living cornerstone. And in first, second, and third, John, he is our advocate, pleading in righteousness in our place. And Jude, he is God, our Savior, the one who keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless in the glory of the Lord. And in Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. He is the King of the kings, the Lord of lords. He is the Lamb who has been slain. He is why we do what we do here every single day in class. He is what we do when we go to our neighbors and we go to the nations and we live today on mission together because God has this whole thing rigged and he wins. Southeastern, if you do nothing else today, walk Walk in the confidence that one day we will be with him in glory and he promised to never leave us and forsake us. Let's pray and thank him for this. God, you are the great I am. There is none like you. And God, I pray that every single one of us myself included, that, God, we would live the rest of this day, the day that you have given us, that, God, we would live in this day with our eyes fixed because you are high and lifted up and we would be reminded that what we have to look forward to. Help us to know you better, Jesus. Help us to make you known today. Give us boldness to go tell others about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Southeastern, let's go. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.